Please take your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew in chapter 7. We come this morning in our regular exposition, our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew and through the Sermon on the Mount now uh, to Matthew chapter 7, the third and final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount. And we will consider this morning verses 1 through 6, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Uh, Please follow along as I read. (coughs) Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Uh, Let's pray once more. Our Father, as we come to consider this passage, We pray that you would show us your will. We pray that you would help us to do your will. We pray that you would help us to love your will. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, We come to the third and final chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7. Chapters 5 and 6, I'll confess in my own study of the Sermon on the Mount, seem to me uh, to be much easier to sort of diagram and understand and to see the connection between uh, various sections. Those chapters are very clear in their structure and their themes. Chapter 7, on the other hand, uh, seems a little more uh, stitched together. I say it seems that way. Uh, The relationship between the various teachings that we're going to see in this chapter Uh, the relationship between the various parts is not always manifest. It's a little harder to trace a through line uh, through the chapters. However, there are at least a couple of major features we're going to see in chapter 7 over the coming weeks. Uh, There will be an emphasis on matters related to how we ought to live in Christian community. We've learned so much about personal piety. Uh, Maybe the emphasis has been on individual personal piety, We're going to see more about how our piety is to be manifest in the community and how we're to engage with one another in the community of faith, in the church. That's an emphasis, I think, in this chapter. Uh, Second, you also have in chapter 7 many warnings about hypocrisy and about false teachers and the danger of being self-deceived. That will come up again and again in chapter 7. Now this morning, though, we're in verses 1 through 6. And I've decided, this is a bit unusual, uh, if you you listen to more of my sermons, I want to treat the last verse first. And I want to do so here in my introduction to this sermon. I want to treat verse 6 first before looking at verses 1 through 5. Verse 6 says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I'll just say, after studying this passage this week, the whole chapter, chapter 7, and these six verses, I'll just confess I'm not sure where to place verse 6. Most commentators will place it with verses 1 through 5, as I'm doing in this sermon. Uh, Some will treat it as a standalone teaching. Some will try to connect it to verses 7 through 11. But exactly where to place it and how to understand its connection to what has gone before and what is to come after, uh, I'm just kind of crying uncle. I, I don't know. Uh, exactly how to place uh, verse 6. And there are a few challenges I find in trying to interpret this particular verse. Uh, First of all, Jesus doesn't tell us 
his meaning in verse 6. Uh, so often when Jesus will use some kind of metaphor or image or illustration, he explains the metaphor, the image, or the illustration, or it's embedded in a context that makes it immediately manifest and clear what he's talking about. He doesn't do that here, uh, nor does he connect the verse to anything he said previously about judging others or anything he's about to say about seeking God in prayer and asking him for good things. Furthermore, in terms of difficulties associated with verse 6, uh, there are some questions that do arise from the text that I'm not exactly sure how to answer. For example, what are the holy things uh, or the pearls to which Jesus refers? I don't see anything in the context that makes that clear. Uh, secondly, who are the dogs and the pigs that he has in view? Furthermore, how do they trample the pearls underfoot and turn to attack you? What action is in mind there? as we look at uh, that statement. Of course, many of you may be familiar with the traditional interpretation of the verse. Uh, many will take this particular verse and, and argue that we should not um, uh, preach the gospel in a way or to an extent that's going to lay it open to abuse. Uh, they might say, you know, it's, it's one thing to present the gospel a few times, uh, but if people are mocking the gospel and jeering at Jesus and making a ridicule of the gospel, well, then you should do what the apostles did. You know, shake the dust off your feet and no longer preach the gospel in that way. That could be what's meant here. That's by no means obvious to me as I look at the passage. The gospel is not mentioned in chapter 7 anywhere. Uh, the idea that we are to only preach the gospel up to a certain point is not said anywhere in the context here. It could be the meaning, but it's not clear to me. Uh, the New Testament scholar R.T. France says this, perhaps we can be no more definite than to say that disciples are to be discriminating in sharing the sacred things of the gospel and the treasures of their Father in heaven so as not to lay them open to abuse, but we should avoid offering a more specific identification of who are to be regarded as unsuitable or incapable of receiving them. There's a kind of temperateness in that interpretation I find attractive personally. So you'll have to excuse me, I don't presently know how to say much more beyond that. Maybe some of you understand this passage better than I do and can be my teacher. I don't do this often, I think I've only done this one other time uh, where I've sort of passed over a verse in my exposition. Uh, and the reason for that is I don't think it would be fruitful for you to hear my guesswork for 30 minutes. It would just be speculations. And it's just not clear to me how to say more than what I just quoted from R.T. France. So the rest of this sermon will focus uh, on verses 1 through 5 and Jesus' exhortations regarding judging others. Uh, this oft-misunderstood passage represents essential teaching for Christian disciples, not only with respect to our own personal Christian walk, but with respect to how we live in relationships with other Christians. On what terms will we relate to our brothers and sisters? This is what Jesus is going after in verses 1 through 5. Will my followers, he is saying, be superior and supercilious and self-righteous like the Pharisees, judging one another? Or will they relate to one another on the terms of grace and mercy and forgiveness and love? So we'll consider three points this morning in our exposition of verses 1 through 5, followed by a few implications. We'll see first the command given. A second, the rationale provided. And thirdly, the issue illustrated. The command given, the rationale provided, the issue illustrated. Consider with me first the command given. Uh, the command very simply is judge not. Or do not judge. Uh, now I hope you've not become weary of this approach that I've taken often in the Sermon on the Mount. I want us to consider first what this does not mean uh, before considering what it means. I think... Zach, uh, when he was here a few weeks ago, called this Alex's paint-by-numbers approach. That's fine if it's a paint-by-numbers approach, okay? We need to consider what's not meant by the command, do not judge or judge not. When we read judge not, we should not imagine Jesus is commanding his disciples to never make judgments of any kind at all. I hope that's just obvious. It's going to manifest if you know anything about the Bible. He's not telling us that we're to never exercise our critical faculties, uh, to distinguish between truth and error or right and wrong or what one should do in a given situation, those sorts of things. In fact, uh, we have seen, haven't we, in the Sermon on the Mount uh, that 
the Lord's disciples are required to make all kinds of judgments. Uh, we have to judge things related to doctrine. We have to judge things related to right and wrong. Uh, we have to judge, we're going to see later on in Matthew 7, between true teachers and false teachers, between good fruit and bad fruit. Uh, the Apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 5 that even in the church community, there is a kind of judging we should do toward one another. Uh, Paul says, what, what right have I to judge outsiders? Isn't it those inside the church who you are to judge? They're speaking of putting out of the fellowship those who are living in unrepentant sin. And of course, Paul is drawing there on the teaching of the Lord himself, who requires that we make distinctions and judgments even within uh, the church community itself, making that point, I think, in Matthew 18. And so it's not saying all kinds of judgments are off limits. And Jesus' meaning certainly, furthermore, cannot be construed to be the sort of monstrous or wicked idea that all behaviors are equally fine and valid and moral and good. And what Jesus is saying is we should never judge people. Uh, friends, bad actors will take that line all the time. Uh, you could just sort of hear the mainline liberal preacher if you affirm the historic Christian sexual ethic. Oh, well, well, in our church, we don't make a habit of judging people. And uh, what they mean by that is not actually what Jesus means here, but rather a distortion and a misrepresentation of what Jesus teaches here. Of course, the Bible repeatedly tells us how we're to live, what is sin and what's not, what is righteous and good, all these kinds of things. And so this verse should never be employed as kind of a wrecking ball to sort of level all conduct as equally moral and acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. Now, Jesus is clearly talking about a particular kind of judging we're not to engage in when he says judge not. So what exactly is that kind of judging? Let's consider positively now the kind of judging Jesus is talking about uh, here when he gives the command to judge not. Now, the word judge, it's noun form and verb form, has a very wide, what we call a semantic range in the Bible, meaning it can mean lots of different things uh, depending on the context, and sometimes it can be hard to discern exactly how the word is being used in particular passages. However, here in this passage, uh, I don't think it's very hard to understand the meaning at all. The context gives us all kinds of helps to understand the kind of behavior, the kind of judging that Jesus is talking about. It would appear that what Jesus has in mind when he commands his disciples to judge not is that they are not to pronounce judgment over others in the context of interpersonal relationships, particularly between brothers and sisters in the community of faith. And I agree with John Stott, who argues that the main idea here uh, with this kind of judgment between brothers and sisters is the idea of what he calls censoriousness. Uh, censoriousness. What is censoriousness? To be censorious. Uh, Stott says this, censoriousness is a compound sin consisting of several unpleasant ingredients. It does not mean to assess people critically, but to judge them harshly. The censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive toward other people and enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. That's the censorious man or woman. I think that's the heart of what Jesus is talking about here. In other words, the kind of judgment which we're to avoid comes in the form of excessive criticism and censure of other people, particularly their failings and weaknesses and sins. It's taking a severely critical attitude toward the sins of others. That is to unjustly and unfairly and unlovingly and uncharitably to place people under our sentence and to pronounce them guilty and condemned and undeserving and unredeemable. And it is particularly to do so with a censorious or an excessively critical eye. Now, this is the person who closely scrutinizes the faults of others and exaggerates their failings. Now, this is the person who paints the sins of others in the broadest possible strokes. Now, this is the person who is eager to tar and feather people, not even over small transgressions. This is the man or woman who makes no allowance for weaknesses, is unpracticed in covering offenses and is unwilling to forbear with others. This person has a merciless attitude toward others and is governed by a censorious spirit. And Jesus is saying, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Don't, don't judge in that way. Don't take that posture 
that attitude towards your brothers and sisters. But I think there is still a little bit more that could be said about this issue of judging others and what Jesus has in view. It's not just the action itself. It is what the action reveals about the way we view ourselves in relation to others. It discloses something about our hearts when we judge people in this way and take this posture toward others. Those who judge judge others view themselves as superior to others. They view themselves self-righteously, being in a position, having standing to judge others. It involves a kind of elevation of self over others. Those who judge like this view themselves not as peers and colleagues with sinners, but as morally superior to others, and thus they act like the final judge and arbiter over others. They're eager to pass sentence over others. They don't see themselves as fellow travelers. They don't see themselves as peers in sin, as fellow sinners. They see themselves as morally superior, as judges, as arbiters, as masters over others, and thus they would put themselves in the place of God. And where they should reserve judgment for God and God alone, they instead usurp his authority and judge others themselves. And Jesus is saying, you are not their master. You are not their judge. You are not their God. They do not answer to you. You may not set yourself up as judge over them. You may not make such pronouncements over men's souls. Judge not, the Lord says. That is the command given. The command is that we not take a censorious posture toward our fellow sinners, that we're not to have a severe and hypercritical attitude toward our brothers and sisters, and that we're not to be self-righteous and superior with respect to them by becoming their judge. That's the command given. Now consider with me, secondly, the rationale provided that we see in this text. The rationale provided. Look with me again at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is providing a rationale for the command. That you may be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, Jesus is not only saying that you are not to be judged over others. What does he say? You yourselves are among the judged. It's not that you shouldn't be judge over others. You yourselves will be among the judged. And you shall be judged with greater strictness if you dare to judge others in this way. Now again, appreciate what this is not saying, what Jesus' meaning isn't. This is not saying if we judge other people, like if, if I judge Todd, Todd's going to judge me back. Uh, that may be the case, I don't know. But it's not saying what goes around comes around. It's not like karma. Well, if you're going to have a judgmental person, look out. People are going to judge you. Now, Jesus is saying something far more spiritually and eternally serious than that. Jesus is referring to the judgment of God. He is saying, if you are severe and judgmental and condemnatory and intolerant and censorious and unforgiving and merciless toward others... I assure you, God will treat you in the same way. This statement is of a piece with things Jesus has said elsewhere in this sermon. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. What's the point? If we are sanctimonious and cruel and censorious and severe in our dealings with others, God will be so with us. That is not because you can lose your salvation by your conduct, but because you can demonstrate by your conduct that you actually know nothing of the saving grace and mercy of God. You act in this way toward other people. What are you revealing about yourself? If we are censorious and severe and ungenerous in our treatment of others, we are betraying the fact that we have no real knowledge of the gospel and have experienced nothing of the transforming power of the grace and mercy of God. That's what this verse is saying. You remember the parable of the unforgiving servant. We've already spoken about it a few times in this 
series in Matthew's gospel, what happens in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18? Uh, the, the chief master, he has judged his servant who owes him a great debt with mercy and grace and charity and benevolence, and he forgives the debt and he lets him go, and what does that uh, servant of his do? He finds someone who owes him money, and he grounds him by the throat and puts him up against the wall, and he says, pay me everything you owe me. And where does the parable go? What is the man revealing? That he actually knows nothing of the gospel. He knows nothing of the saving mercy and grace of God. He can have no comprehension, apprehension of the goodness and grace of God. He's revealing something about his heart. And so Jesus says at the end of that parable, if you treat others in this way, you will be treated in this way. It discloses something, reveals something about your own heart. Friends, please hear me on this. One of the clearest indications of our own apprehension of the grace of God is how we respond to the sins and failings of others. One of the clearest indications, one of the surest tests of our own apprehension of the grace of God is how we respond to the sins and failings of others. The sins and failings of others in your own home, between husband and wife, children, sins and failings of others in the church community. I think that's probably what's in view in Jesus' words here. Sins and failings of others in all kinds of contexts. How do you respond when people sin against you? Uh, friend, you can tithe all you want. You can raise your hands and worship. Uh, you can even sign up for all sorts of ministries and sacrifice your time to serve. But if you are cruel towards sinners and severe with those who commit trespasses against you, you know nothing of the grace of God in the gospel. Or as the Apostle John will say, how dwells the love of God in you? You are a stranger to God's mercy and to the forgiveness of sins. So friends, just ask yourself honestly the diagnostic questions. Jesus is encouraging introspection here. How do you respond to the people who sin against you? Or how about this? When you learn of some, let's just say, especially sensational or what others would regard as an egregious sin in the life of someone among our fellowship, how do you respond? It's revealed that man's been living in adultery or that a sister in the church has developed a drinking problem or a Christian young person is struggling with same-sex attraction. How do you respond when you learn those things? Is it with censure and withdrawal? Is it like the Pharisees? Oh, Lord, I thank God that I am not like other men. Or do you experience a kind of compassion and mercy that issues forth from your own experience of God's compassion and mercy? Oh, Lord, have mercy on this brother or sister. I recognize that same thing is in my heart. We are all awash in sin and failure. We're all in this sinful mess together. And Lord, would you help them and show mercy on them as you have shown mercy on me? And if there are ways as, uh, that, that I can restore them and help them, I want to do that. What is your spirit, your attitude toward the sins of others? I've seen illustrations of this time and time again in church life. So often, those who profess faith in Christ can have such disparate reactions to sin when it becomes visible. Uh, something in the church has to be shared publicly. And some people can so quickly become judgmental and censorious in their attitude toward that brother or sister. And then there are others who are better rehearsed in the grace of God and better conditioned by the gospel and their heart runs out to the person because they recognize something of themselves in that person. Here's a needy sinner who's become ensnared. I know what that's like. You may look on at something like that and think, well, well I'm not, I've not done that. I've been following Christ for 25 years, thank you very much, and I've never sinned in that way. Well, ducky for you. What do you have that you have not received? So the Lord has preserved your path. And in his grace, you've not fallen in the same way. What, are you going to stand up and say, what? 
Yeah, I've been, that's me doing me. You know, I've been keeping on the straight and narrow, and this poor sop, he's just sort of, you know, veered off. Friends, that's the spirit of the Pharisee's prayer. I thank you that I'm not like them. Or will you be like the publican, the sinner, beats his breast, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on my brother. Help us together to walk as we ought to walk. Friends, the greatest antidote against being a censorious and judgmental prig is a greater apprehension of your own native sinfulness and of your own need of mercy and forgiveness from God. If you see others through the lens of the mercy and grace and long-suffering and forgiveness of God in Christ, God will see you through that same lens. It is an indicator that you are already one who has experienced his mercy and grace and favor. But if you look at people with a merciless and severe lens, you have revealed who you really are and how God will see you. The rationale Jesus provides here is that we will be judged by the same standard with which we judge others. And therefore, we should treat others on the very same terms in which we hope God will treat us. What an incentive to mercy and grace and compassion. That makes me want to be an eager dispenser of mercy. I want to give as I've received. And all of a sudden now, the offenses of others against me doesn't become an occasion for me to get all up in arms and to vindicate myself and to keep the score and keep accounts of wrongs. No, it becomes an opportunity for me to display the gospel, to show forth and demonstrate the love and the mercy and compassion that I myself have experienced so spectacularly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we have the command given, the rationale provided. Consider thirdly the issue illustrated. And I don't know what it was like sitting there on the mountain with Jesus. This feels a little humorous to me, where things go in verse 3. Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Uh, children, do you, you get the picture that Jesus is painting here? Uh, uh, here is a man, he's got like a whole like, like two by four, like a log that's like stuck in his eye. I don't even really know how that happens, okay? But there's a log that's coming out of his eye. And then here's someone else, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, and this person is just a little speck, bothersome, devil speck in your eye, a little, little bit of sawdust, and the guy with the log coming out of his eye is trying to like do surgery on the guy with the speck in his eye. He's going to be able to, with the log coming out of his eye, he's going to be able to see this little speck in his brother's eye. Well, it seems ridiculous, doesn't it? It seems almost humorous and silly. Well, I think Jesus is deliberately putting forth a kind of ridiculous show, an illustration of how silly we look when we seek to judge others. He's intentionally, deliberately showing up our hypocritical judging of others as just so silly uh, and so ridiculous. And the point I think he's highlighting here is that we can often have the tendency to exaggerate the faults of others and to minimize our own faults. Exaggerate the faults of others, we minimize our own faults. I do pastoral counseling uh, of some kind or another every week. You see this kind of thing all the time. I see it in my own heart, I see it in my own marriage. And the tendency to look at the other person with a, a more fine-tuned lens, kind of under the microscope you have their sins but all kinds of grace and allowance for your own failures. And many of us, it is our tendency as sinful men and women. Jesus is saying some people will walk around and they themselves are covered in sins of thought, word, and deed. They themselves are guilty of so many wrongs and failings themselves, and yet they'll still set themselves up as judges over others. And very often, these people are more guilty and more awash in sin and wrongdoing than those they are critiquing. And they thus prove to be behaving like hypocrites. So easy for us to be guilty of this kind of thing. We can be so ready to rebuke and judge others severely. And yet, don't we 
preserve such storehouses of grace for ourselves. And with others, we are the severest critics. But with ourselves, we get every benefit of the doubt. And with others, immediate censure and judgment. With ourselves, abundant patience and sympathy. Just ask yourself, good diagnostic question. I think Jesus, again, is encouraging self-reflection, introspection, self-awareness. Do you ever make the excuses and allowances for others that you so often make for yourself? In a situation with some tension, you know you've done something wrong, but come on, I was very tired, I had a long day, I had a lot on my mind, I've not been having a good time of it lately, and so I, it, could, it could be forgiven, covered over. Do you ever extend that grace and charity uh, toward your brothers and sisters, toward your husband or your wife, toward your children or your parents, toward the people who commit offenses against you? Are we ready uh, to be self-critical before we're critical of others? One of the ways we can test this in our own hearts is to consider the narratives that we create about ourselves when it comes to life and relationships. Plenty of psychologists have uh, sort of written about this, that human beings naturally are narrative makers. We're always contextualizing everything in our lives. We're always writing our story. We may not think in that language, but we're always doing that. And we're positioning people as characters in the drama of me, and we are labeling some heroes and some villains. Oh, my friend, in all the narratives that you are creating about your life, are you always the hero? Are you always the martyr? Are you always the one that's being discounted and persevering and bucking up under all the failures of other people? Are you ever the villain? Or is it kind of you against others? You're always you know, walking the straight and narrow. It's these other people, you see, that make life so difficult and so hard and so inconvenient. See, this text is a call to self-awareness. And that call to self-awareness is meant specifically and intentionally to make us more aware of our own sinfulness. Jesus wants us to feel more our own native frailty and sinfulness and for that awareness to generate more sympathy and compassion toward our fellow sinners. It's a good saying and a good rule of thumb and I base it on this passage. We should all seek to have large eyes to our own faults, failings, and sins and small eyes to the faults, failings, and sins of others. Husbands and wives here this morning, this is a good, good rule of thumb. I'm going to commit to have large eyes, more visibility on my own sins and weaknesses and failings. And I'm going to have to squint to see the sins and failings of others. Large eyes to our own failures, small eyes to the failures of others. Now this is a, a small point, uh, not Jesus' main point, but I think it's worth noticing nonetheless. I notice there are still occasions where we may talk to our brother about the speck in his eye, but only after, Jesus says, we have stopped playing the hypocrite and removed the log that is in our own eye, then we will be in a better position to help our brother. I think the idea is this. We must exercise first self-criticism before we venture to criticize others. I should be self-reflective and honest about my own sins before I talk to others about their sins. And friends, this affects the spirit in which I'm to approach others. I don't come to them as a self-righteous hypocrite. I don't come to them as the meticulous fault finder and the severe judge and critic. No, I approach them as a brother in Christ who is self-aware and self-reflective and comes as a peer and a companion alongside another to help. The judge is over the judged, but the brother comes alongside. The sister is the peer. You recognize this. In the church, we who are the Lord's people, we have a kind of solidarity in sin. The phrase I use all the time is we're all in this sinful mess together. We are peers, companions, fellow travelers in fighting our remaining sin. 
if you take that posture with an awareness of your own failings and weaknesses and sins, it will begin to condition the way you approach your brothers and sisters in the church. You won't be coming to them as a self-righteous superior judge over them, but as a sympathetic and compassionate and gracious brother or sister alongside them. And that's what Jesus, I think, is driving us to. We're meant to help one another. So these are the three points we've considered in this passage, the command given, the rationale provided, the issue illustrated. I'd like to close uh, with three implications, uh, only briefly. Let's consider three implications for us from this passage. These are not the only implications or applications, but three uh, that I think are especially important for us to consider. Number one, a judgmental and censorious spirit will fracture and destroy all Christian community. A judgmental and censorious spirit will fracture and destroy all Christian community. Friends, one of the marks of a healthy Christian church is a steadfast commitment on the part of individual members to be forbearing and long-suffering in the face of one another's sins. One of the marks of a healthy Christian church is a steadfast commitment on the part of the individual members to be forbearing and long-suffering in the face of one another's sins. Churches don't make it apart from such a commitment. Friends, you've heard me say this before. Churches often dissolve and go astray due to a failure to hold fast to sound doctrine and to the biblical gospel. That's true. We see ample evidence of that in our own community, our own nation. However, perhaps more often, churches dissolve and go astray due to a failure to love one another amidst many sins and failings. Friends, if we judge one another, if we're punctilious about each other's faults, if we ourselves keep accounts and hold grudges and censure one another, if we fail to love one another, we're done as a church. Uh, I don't want to be the pastor of or a member of, and I'm sure you don't want to be a member of, a church that has forgotten how to love. A church that is through with tolerating your failures and weaknesses. A church that has no patience for sins and offenses. A church that has forgotten the grace and mercy and compassion that should be generated by the gospel we say we believe. Friends, this will destroy a church like ours if we are severe with one another in the face of our sins and failings toward one another. Hardly anything else can more quickly sink the ship of a biblical church than a failure of love. And that's what this is. To judge one another in this way and to take this posture toward one another is a failure of love. Friends, remember love. Paul says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I'm reminded even now, this is not in my notes, didn't plan to say this. Don't want to embarrass our brother Robert Fisher. Robert Fisher was pastor of a church in Coconut Creek, Florida for 20, 20 some years, planted the church in 2005, 6, 7, left the church to take a role in uh, Mebane due to some health challenges. I remember his last sermon. What would you preach if you had served faithfully among a people for 20, 25 years? How many sermons had we heard from our brother? Now he's coming to the end of a fruitful ministry among the people he dearly loves. Do you know what he preached on? Last sermon. The centrality of love. 
was the last thing I can leave with these people as their minister. It is to remind them of the priority, the centrality of love in the life of the church. That sounds very much like the Apostle Peter to me. 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, love one another earnestly. For love covers a multitude of sins. Friends, love doesn't just cover um, some traits I find less than affable. Uh, Love doesn't just cover personality quirks. No, love looks at the sin. Love looks at the offense. And love makes a choice. I'm going to judge? Or am I going to take the blanket of grace and cover this? I don't want anyone to see this. I don't want to expose and give profile and visibility to my brother's sins. No, in love and in mercy and in grace, I take that sheet and clothe them. Don't reveal their nakedness. No, I cover in a blanket of love the sins and offenses of my brothers and sisters. And the sins and offenses of my brothers and sisters committed against me when it may be hardest. Uh, Friends, it is easy to sustain love toward one another when we are most winsome, most attractive, most affable, most amiable, most agreeable. That's not the test of love. The test of love is how we respond when sinned against by our brothers and sisters. And this is the reverse side of Jesus' teaching. If we are marked by judgment and censure and severity and mercilessness in our relationships toward one another in the midst of all of our sins, we will fail. And there's good reason to believe the Lord himself will remove the Spirit's influence from us What was the failure of the Ephesian church? They forgot the love that they had at first. They weren't loving as they should. They knew their doctrine. The Lord commends them for that. But they began to see each other differently and to treat each other differently. And petty sins and offenses began to overwhelm the church. And love failed. Friends, what Jesus is talking about in this passage, this idea of judgment... It will destroy the church, and it will fracture and render impossible true Christian community, which ought to always exist on the terms of grace and love and mercy. Implication number two, more briefly. Say a judgmental and censorious spirit will not only fracture and destroy all Christian community, a judgmental and censorious spirit will fracture and destroy your own soul. And at this point, through this passage, I just appeal to your conscience. Do you fear the judgment of God? If, if I am shut up to mercy and I've closed my heart to grace, I have no right to presume upon the grace and mercy and forgiveness of God. Oh, but if I treat others with the love I've received, the grace I've received, I may enter into God's presence with great confidence that I truly have been transformed by the grace of God. It's had its way with me. And it's evident in good works and in a life of compassion and kindness and benevolence and charity. Oh, friend, if you shut your heart up to mercy and grace, you will become cold and dead inside, spiritually so. And you will be in spiritual peril. What a dangerous place to be, to go through your whole life, merciless, censorious, critical, judgmental, and then to stand before your judge. What do you expect? What do you expect? Lord, rather let this become an incentive. I want to be a lover of mercy. I want to be a lover of grace. And I'll just say to you, my friend, if you don't see in your heart any traces of a merciful posture, a love of grace, a love of compassion, 
there's a place you can go to learn it. There's someone who can make you truly merciful, truly gracious. That leads to the third implication. There is only one antidote to a judgmental and cessorious spirit. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is an antidote, a cure, a serum, an aid, a help, a medicine I can take for a merciless heart? The antidote is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was watching an interview recently with a celebrity, and they were talking about, earlier in the celebrity's life, very publicly, they would kind of write the record and settle accounts and scandals and things like that and speak about things and relationships and press that they had gotten. And the interviewer said, well, well, how, how have you gotten over that? Well, I just stopped caring. I just sort of shut it off. That is no pathway to mercy. No, to become a merciful and gracious person, you must come to experience mercy and grace in your own heart. And you can only do this through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does the gospel do? Well, in the first instance, it introduces us to ourselves. It shows us how weak and sinful and frail and unworthy we are. It tells the truth about us. I can't entertain any more of these fictions about myself, of how spectacular and beautiful and wonderful I am, and how everyone around me is just you know, making my life you know, more inconvenient. No, I recognize through the gospel preached to me, I'm a sinner. I need the grace and mercy of God. The, the gospel gives me a lens through which I see myself. And the gospel then introduces me to the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ that flows freely to me if I will but trust in him. So undeserving a wretch as me could experience mercy and forgiveness and grace from God. For my many offenses, I can be forgiven. For all the ways I've sinned against him, I've given him nothing but my own sins and failings. I can know forgiveness. I can experience mercy. We're meant to become sort of overwhelmed in this, that where my sins abounded, there's this overwhelming grace that rather overwhelms my sin. And I become awash now, not in just my native sinfulness, now I'm awash in the mercy and kindness of God. And then what the gospel does is it shapes me, transforms me, trains me. And how then to show that mercy toward others, to show that grace to others. If I am so deeply affected at the root of my heart, so much so that the best available image is new birth, I will learn to be a merciful man. I'll learn to show grace as I've received grace. I'll learn to forgive as I have been forgiven. And I will extend to others the very grace I myself hope to receive. You see how the gospel is meant to affect us at the deepest possible level. So much so now that we see one another through a new lens, there's a new way. We are meant to look at one another, not through the lens of judgment, not through the lens of censure over sin, but through the lens of mercy and compassion and grace. Uh, my friend, if you're here this morning and you've never experienced something like that kind of grace and mercy, great news for you. Uh, God himself is not like us. Uh, he's not like the Pharisees. He's not like the hypocrites. God is eager. It's one thing to say that God is merciful. It's another thing to say God is eager to show mercy. God's posture, God's heart, God's disposition is that he loves mercy. He loves grace. And he wants, he's willing to cover all of your sins and offenses and weaknesses in unspeakable love and mercy. He's willing to forgive every last trespass. You can be saved from your sins through this gospel. And then what it'll do is it'll change you. 
such that you're no longer a judgmental and vindictive and miserable, crotchety, censorious person, that you become gracious yourself, loving yourself, even amidst all the sins and failures of yourself and all the people around you. Oh, may God bless his word to all of our hearts. Let's pray together. Our Father, we need to be taught. We need to be schooled and instructed. We need to be discipled and trained in the school of grace and mercy. When we look within, Lord, we don't often see in us a willingness and an eagerness to extend compassion to others. Would you so work within us the power of the gospel, the power of the grace of God, that we would be transformed more and more into eager purveyors of grace to others? We pray you'd help us. As your Lord has taught us to judge not, to not live in a posture of superiority and self-righteousness and judgment and criticism toward others but to dwell with one another in the terms of grace and mercy and love. Father, please forgive us. We don't want to be hypocrites. We want to be in truth what we hope you've made us to be. Citizens of your kingdom, disciples of the Lord Jesus, the objects of your great mercy and love. We would live and walk always in mercy and love. Please help us, we pray. Lord, there may be some here who are just so cold inside, so dead inside, hearts that have so long been shut up to mercy and kindness and generosity that, that they don't even know where to begin. How would I start? Lord, start by saving them. Please show mercy to them. Overwhelm them in grace that they might turn and show grace to others. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand now and sing.